Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Market Show, Thursday the 28th of July as we record. Uh, and what's been a big week for companies, news and results. Luckily, we found a spare half an hour to tear Julian Hoffman and Mark Robinson away from their desks and indeed Dan Jones. Uh, Dan, what is coming up on the show today? Hi, John. Uh, yes, we have a deluge of results, which is very much in contrast to the apparent water shortage we have in this building right now. But uh, uh, yeah, we are starting with a, a couple of slightly older ones. We're starting with Unilever and we're going to be discussing that and maybe a little look at Reckitt as well. Then we're talking about our cover story, which this week is on shares to fight inflation or how to use shares to protect against the ravages of inflation. And then finally, we're going to return to some more results and look at some of the banks, Lloyd's and Barclays in particular. Lovely stuff. Well, before then, the news from the week. Fed rates rises continue. For the second consecutive month, the US central bank has hiked interest rates by 0.75%. Fed Chair Jay Powell, however, soothed markets by saying the US central bank was open to the possibility of smaller increases uh, in the future. Mark Zuckerberg's Meta, formerly Facebook, has reported its first ever year-on-year quarterly revenue decline. The April to June period saw profits down 1% from 2021 levels. Speaking to investors, Zuckerberg said, we seem to have entered an economic downturn that will have a broad impact on the digital advertising business. Elsewhere in big tech, Microsoft and Alphabet shares rose 4 and 5% respectively off the back of solid if unspectacular results while last week twitter and snap underwhelmed uh, arthur sans has a full tech write-up on the website and in the magazine shell has broken its profit record for the second consecutive quarter and announced a six billion dollar share buyback scheme as the fallout from the war in ukraine continues to generate bumper earnings Low-cost airline EasyJet suffered a headline loss before tax of £114 million in the three months of June. That's despite a sevenfold increase in the number of passengers flown. EasyJet said that current capacity and cost impacts were a one-off limited to this summer. British American Tobacco has been forced to take a £957 million impairment charge linked to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Despite this, financial performance has been solid through to the half year. And Rolls-Royce has appointed the former head of BP's downstream operations, Tufan Ergenbilchik, as its chief executive from January next year. He will replace Warren East, who announced in February that he would step down after nine years in the role. Quick look at the markets, FTSE 100 up around 1% in the past week, uh, similar to how things have been going on Wall Street as well, also up around 1%. Thank you, John. Uh, Yes, so on this possibly the busiest day of the year company uh, results-wise, we are going to start with one from a couple of days ago and then move into some of the more recent ones. We'll start with Unilever, which uh, is a company that's attracted a lot of attention and discussion this year for a variety of reasons. But at at its core, it is a company which is often cited as one that could do well in a time of high inflation, you know, protecting margins. Uh, Mark Robinson, our company's editor, uh, has looked at the interim results. How do you see that sort of the top top down view to start with, Mark? Well, um, what stands out uh, for me, at least initially, and this applies to a few other companies that I've seen during the reporting season, is that they've been able to maintain those margins because of a successful pass through to uh, a consumer base. 
Now that came as something of a surprise. You know, they've done this successfully, but the the other side of the coin there is that they've had uh, a decrease in volumes. And there must be a, a point at some point in the future when consumers will look to rival products or um, non-branded products, uh, generics, so we can sort of reasonably expect there will be a, a trail-off in volumes as the year progresses. But for now, at least, Unilever, from an operational perspective, has performed well in that price pass-through. I, I guess an, another feature of the result as well is that I was looking for any mention, really, of uh, ESG or, or stakeholder principles in there, and it was very difficult to find. So clearly, I think they've been stung by criticism that they've been paying far too much attention to wider social issues rather than just the operational activities within the company itself. I guess this might have something to do with the addition of uh, Nelson Peltz to the board. He was the founder of Try and Fund Management, and he's got a reputation in the past of moving into into underperforming companies and uh, increasing efficiencies and earnings. So that may have concentrated minds. Plus, the company has come under a great deal of criticism from the market itself and people like Terry Smith because, you know, he believes that they've taken their eye off the ball uh, with relation to the uh, day-to-day operations of the, the company. I suppose this is a, a year which are really, which are really, you know, focus minds, concentrate minds. You know, it is all about the margins at the moment. It, it is very much about trying to, you know, ensure that pass through can be sustained, as you say. You think often with uh, Unilever, you know, distributors versus suppliers. Think of the likes of Tesco, I suppose, and the arguments they've had with Heinz recently. I think it was about five, six years ago, they did have a similar dispute with, with Unilever itself over Marmite. You've got to imagine some of those conversations behind the scenes are, are fairly uh, strong, shall we say, given both Unilever and Tesco do dearly obviously want to protect their margins at all costs at a time of double-digit food inflation. Do, do you think we'll see kind of more tensions coming on that front? Almost certainly, almost certainly, because as I say, we, we it's very difficult to assess this, but there must come a point in the market where consumers to start considering alternatives and given that inflation is running at you know 10% per annum that that point could be uh, over the, the second half of this year uh, quite conceivably it, it's a certain amount of irony as well because you're talking about the, the dispute with with Heinz but they've also come unstuck with the the Ben and Jerry's uh, ice cream franchise as well because of because of Ben and Jerry's sort of opposition to selling their products within the occupied Palestinian territories. And now I think they're actually taking Unilever to court over this matter as well, which is an incredible irony there, given that you know social provisions have been a, a big part of, of, of their selling point for Unilever. Why? I don't know. But uh, that's where things stand at the moment. Yeah, and they, they are a subsidiary of Unilever. So, yeah, they clearly are internal tensions as much as anything else at the moment. The, the trading down is an interesting uh, issue, isn't it? I know we've spoken about this a little bit in the last few weeks about Halion, the new spin-off of, uh, from GSK, which, of course, Unilever did try to buy, which is another thing that rubbed shareholders up the wrong way, I think, earlier this year. With those kind of products, you know, medical, you know, Panadol, those kind of things, there's maybe a sense that trading down is harder to do. People, if they're unwell, will still kind of cling to to the, the brands they know best. But but when it comes to, to food staples, maybe that's you know, something that that's less resilient. They'll think, well, I'll just buy the, you know, supermarket owned Marmite, that kind of thing. So it will be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, the the, the, the 
the psychology behind these things is quite interesting as well. And I actually wrote up results for um, Diageo this morning too. And there's a, a kind of counterintuitive uh, strand in there because they seem to have done they, they've done very well on the on the price pass through and their costs linked to uh, to glass, for instance, which is very energy intensive to produce, plus rising grain costs. They they managed to keep their consumers online, keep them buying through the process of premiumization, uh, which is a dreadful word. I can't even say it without uh, stuttering. But it, it just means actually that uh, consumers, even given wider economic, the wider economic downturn, are actually willing to go up market in terms of some products. Usually, uh, I refer to it as lifestyle luxuries in the art in the article and there's there's plenty of anecdotal and statistical evidence to support this view as well that even during economic woes people are prepared to pay a little bit extra for things that make them feel better uh, or just distract them from the wider problems and that's that's evident in uh, Diego's results today the only um, caveat I put in there is that in, in relation to that company in particular is that we don't really know what's going to happen to grain prices in the early part of next year, but the portents aren't encouraging. I think uh, Reckitt as well is another one, obviously reported in the past few days, where again, it's been able to pass through, you know, pretty hefty, you know, double digit almost price increases, which which just kind of shows the, I suppose, the brand strength there. And, you know, look at all three of these companies, Unilever, Reckitt, Diageo, they are the the classic kind of inflation plays in a way where you know they're never going to shoot the lights out but they will the idea being they'll provide some resilience and so far even with inflation at the levels we're seeing results seem to be bearing that out so that is good news for investors i suppose in terms of those kind of classic plays which brings us to our cover story this week which is on this very subject and it's on the question of how investors should think about inflation what kind of things they should be looking for i mean you know the ability to pass on prices is one thing, but that's far from the only consideration uh, people should be looking at. And of course, there are differing opinions as to how successful these things will be in the long term and, and what kind of companies you you should be examining. Is that fair to say, Julian, you've written this uh, this piece? Yeah, I've put together my semi-annual essay on inflation, which yeah. <laughs> I seem to um, come around to on a regular basis. It's an interesting topic because... There are certain totems about how you should invest during a time of inflation, and and it tends to get trotted out every time we have a bout of it. It's always like you should get involved in utilities because uh, they're monopoly providers. They can pass on costs to customers quite easily. But the the thing I found when I looked at it in more detail is that a lot of the those trees, firstly, they're they're kind of spouted by people who have no personal experience of what investing during inflation actually looks like. Um, because we haven't really had any anything significant for 30 years or more. And secondly, you, you you still have to avoid the value traps and the overpriced expectations of earnings that, that apply even when we don't have inflation. So I, I tried to steer a path in the piece by looking at how companies actually react at a, a granular level to to coping with their supply chains, pricing increases in their supply chains. And it came up with some interesting results. I mean, we talked about Diageo's uh, results, and they're, they're, I would argue, a classic case of how a company can respond because, you know, effectively, they have the pricing power to protect their margins. I mean, the key point here is is, is always protecting the, the, the profit margin. It's not really to do with revenue growth at, at the moment. Yeah, it, it seems to me, it seemed to me that 
that was the the route to go rather than down this idea well you know we'll look for you know inflation linked monopoly providers which i i think is a is a bit of a fallacy if only because those kind of companies particularly in the uk were, were only privatized at a time when there wasn't really high levels of inflation or at least not to, to what we're seeing at the moment or in the in the 1970s yes i, I tried to i tried to bring that all together in a, in a more systematic way really yeah, I think, as you say, you know, we, we've discussed this staples resilience, and that is one go to, you know, which does seem to be, be, you know, putting the proof behind the pudding at the moment. But uh, utilities, as you say, is an interesting area, because there's maybe more doubts there. And I suppose, even widening it out today, you know, you look at the lights, the results of, of Centrica, you know, already attracting a lot of opprobrium for, for doing well at such a time. And that, you know, that kind of political risk is there with these shares, even if they do have qualities to their to the company which can deliver in these kind of times well i think i made that point in the piece is that they the people the reason why pension funds like those kind of shares for for instance is because they have a very stable level of dividend payout but i mean i think our argument is more that's more a compensation for regulatory risk rather than any reflection on their ability to price things because you, you never know i mean it's happened a couple of times in the past but you never know when the government the government's regulatory regime with those kind of utilities is going to change, or they could impose a windfall tax. I mean, that's the other thing that's um, dragging the shares. So you, you have to sort of take a step back and, and actually look at, at companies that have got that ability to price. I mean, that seems to be the differentiator uh, in terms of inflation or in inflation resilient shares. So yeah, I mean, Diageo is one example. We looked at a couple of others, which people can read in the piece, but it, it really does go back to that that going back to first principles, it's not, if you try, the problem is if you try to set out to do something, you'll inevitably misprice what you're trying to buy because you, you end up over, you know, you, you, you might go after inflation on its own, but then you end up overlooking, well, what's that, what's the actual quality of the earnings or how good is the management, for example, that, that tends to be a, a question that gets forgotten in these things. So I, I, the way I've tried to look at it is how to, how to assess a company in the round rather than sort of trying to chase one aspect of it. It's a good point. We should be careful not to let the tail wag the dog in these things, um, despite the fact that, you know, inflation is one of those or perhaps the only thing where it's so all pervasive that it can be hard to see the forest for the trees sometimes. As Julian says, you can find out more details in the magazine this week. It is the cover story. There are a couple of other specific companies mentioned there, as well as a lot of detailed thinking about inflation and how to think about it in the round. Let's move on to some more results. We can't ignore uh, uh, too many of them. There are so many uh, this week. We're going to look at banks, though, in particular, to to conclude today. Barclays reported today, which we'll come to in a minute. But Lloyd's, a very different member of the UK, Big Four, reported a few days ago. And some, some promising signs there, Julian. Yes, uh, Lloyd's or uh, the Black Nag, as we like to call them. It's one of those shares where investors don't tend to give it a lot of credit. So it sort of bubbles away underneath the surface and then comes comes through with a decent a decent performance. But then it never seems to get the recognition that that deserves. The main thing, though, with those type of shares and, and Lloyd's in particular, is that it's become so huge in terms of the mortgage market in the UK that it's almost a proxy, really for taking a view on on the UK's economy generally, but also particularly the housing market. It's almost so vast that you can't, you, you just almost have to be wary of it. So I think that would be the the message to come across from that. But I mean, their operating performance was very good. I mean, they, they took out 
you know they're going to they're on car um they're on course to sit to hit their cost target for the year which is about eight and a half eight point eight billion the net interest margin which is you know the the essential cost of capital versus what they're um lending out has gone up has gone up quite reasonably but um obviously that's related to the bank of england's views on interest rates so you know you can pick up in they've picked up a net interest margin of 2.8 percent which is uh three basis points higher than this time last year. So the regulatory, you know, the general environment seems to be moving in their favour, if that makes uh, any sense. And you, you can't really argue with the overall picture. It's just whether, with Lloyd's, whether it's worth the time for investors. I think that's the difficult question to ask. It, it, it's almost like it's, it's the creation of this gigantic merger in 2008, well, forced merger. And... Um, it's almost like it can't go anywhere. I, I think it hangs a question over its worth. What it's worth for investors, if, if I'm being honest. But you know, eventually that they might end up paying up quite high dividends if they can get the payouts back to their previous level. So there might be a certain income attraction. But I don't think the shares are going to go very quickly, go far, very fast, very quickly. I think that's my basic conclusion. But I mean, you you can't you've got to give it to them. They they did put in a decent second quarter performance, particularly. I suppose it's the story of the past, as you say, the past decade, almost 15 years now. You know, I won't say utility-like because we've just been discussing some of the downsides of utilities. But but yeah, this kind of relatively anodyne performance. The rising rate uh, environment for, for a retail bank like Lloyd's is obviously beneficial. But as we've seen, I suppose, in the share price moves of the past few weeks, the question now is, as you say, whether that benefit will be offset by a slowing you know, economy, a slowing housing market problem for mortgages slightly further down the line a few months down the line so it's one of those relatively intractable questions i suppose i mean you almost wonder whether they would do better as a company uh, and therefore be more interesting if they were smaller i think that's the that's the one paradox you find in it that it doesn't it just doesn't move anywhere very fast and i, I don't think as an investor you're ever going to make a lot of money out of them really yeah at least in their current form yeah well as you say the 2008 merger was was forced upon them rather but uh, uh they are where they are and they may well remain there for a while uh, <laughs> let's 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 talk about barclays which is obviously a very different kind of bank and you know always has you know the odd how should we say if not crisis then the odd alarming episode or there are evidence of that, such things in the results today as well yeah, it's uh, Barclays, uh, um, the stuffed chicken, by contrast, it's it's a very strange um, hybrid of mortgage bank and uh, this kind of ratio investment bank. And and it seems to be that the investment bank, as we saw in the results today, keeps causing them issues that suddenly pop out of nowhere. It's almost like it's a black box operation. And the last thing that went disastrously wrong was that they overissued a load of uh, securities based to um, to American investors that were based on some of their oil and uh, oil ETFs or something, you know, forward contracts, things like that. That cost seems to have escalated, certainly in terms of legal fees. So in the statement, they're saying that their, their legal fees now are something like 400 million that they're on the, on the hook for. The overall impact was something like zero point um, six hundred million from the um, quarterly profit. So it was it, it's definitely quite material for them. But again, you know, their performance wasn't bad. I mean, the UK business is holding up, and you know, their interest, their net interest margin is going up uh, along with everyone else uh, because of the Bank of England's rate uh, increases. It seems to be compensating just about for the sort of lagging investment bank, but. 
as soon as you get further in the cycle, it's the investment bank that then does really well and it sort of compensates for this kind of slightly more pedestrian uh, UK business. But I mean, it's 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 it's, it's a Marmite um, share. Um, I mean, no pun intended uh, when we were talking about yeah. Unilever. Um, but you either you either take it as read, as read that there's always going to be trouble with the investment bank somewhere down the line. And you take that risk and you accept the fact that the shares are very, very cheap. I mean, you can pick them up for sort of five, six times earnings, which is a discount even to any of their peers, really. The, the, the structured note debacle is interesting. It does seem from, I think there's an internal report being commissioned, so I'm sure all the grisly detail will come out in due course. But it does seem, from what I've seen, it's effectively an administrative error in that they forgot to update an internal system, which, you know, allows them to issue a certain number of products up to a certain limit. They forgot to update that, so they kept issuing them. They realised several years later they were several millions or billions over that limit, and now it's costing them and shareholders a lot of money, which, you know, it, it, might, it may all stem due to one person in accounts who left or something, you know. It, it could be that. I mean, also the embarrassing thing is that the current CEO was in charge of that particular mm. um, division. The risk, um, the risk division, yeah. Exactly. So it's um, it, it's not a it's not a happy story, but... Uh, if you take it as if you know, if you take it that that is always going to be the story with Barclays, then you can accept the risk in, in the shares. I mean, whether they're ever going to make a lot of money again in terms of uh, in, you know, for shareholders again is a, is a, is a moot point. But if you can accept that there's always going to be a problem, then uh, it'll be fine in the long term. But it's one of those you know the banking shares, the banking sector generally is is it's still a sort of zombified relic of what it was in the early two thousands. Really, I think that easiest way to describe we should just mention the other probe that which they've taken provisions for which is quite a curious one as well in the u.s looking at staff using personal devices for company business it seems to mainly center around you know people using whatsapp to speak to their colleagues which is encrypted but obviously it's not a uh, a company phone or a company device and that seems to be uh, something that a lot of the the big investment banks in in the U.S. are taking provisions for at the moment. Quite a quite a curious uh, regulatory uh, probe there, but we'll we'll see how long that goes on. Mark, I don't know your thoughts about the, sort of the banking sector. Would you echo Julian's thoughts? You know, it, it's tough to see it excelling even even in you know a higher interest rate environment at the moment. Yes, it's it. You're going to see um, a sort of reduced activity on the commercial lending front as well, which. Uh, Will have an impact. I mean, it's interesting with the uh, Julian talking about Barclays before. It, it seems that this latest scandal in the in the U.S. was was wholly avoidable. You know, this this comes down to governance issues, uh, operational issues itself. Even with rising interest rates, um, it's difficult to think that they're going to perform that well in the market. And it's been a long time since they were seen as having uh, wholly defensive characteristics as well. Yes, I'm, I'm slightly, I'm slightly negative on on the banks, even though we're uh, we're likely to enter into a recession shortly. Yeah, I mean, obviously that has its its downsides as well for for banks as much as as much as any of us. But yeah, we we will see. Maybe one day the uh, the sector will will thrive again. Obviously, you have the the challenger banks, Julian. I don't know what your your thoughts are about there. You know, more of the same, really. And they're still in the same sector, after all. How, how do you sort of see those, those companies? They're, they're interesting. I mean, they're, they're definitely taking market share. I mean, myself, I've switched over to the Challenger Bank, really, from a high street major. I mean, their whole offering is all about uh, easy customer service. 
I don't know yet whether they'll have scale. It'll take a long time, I think, before before they achieve scale. And you might see a few of them merge in order to achieve that. Basic banking is expensive. I mean, there's no question about it. But I mean, their, their advantage, of course, is that they don't have all the physical infrastructure that the, the big high street majors are still lumbered with. Uh, so they can you know, relatively cheaply set up their operations. And you know, they seem to be specializing in certain markets. So you've got one or two that are ethically driven. So you know, they can they can market to that kind of uh, depositor. There are others who are sort of you know, beloved of millennials. They seem to have quite a, a slick sort of marketing brand. Everything sort of phone use. You know, you can you, you do everything through a phone, for example. Uh, that seems to appeal to quite young, uh, many young customers. But it's going to be a long time, I think, before they. They, they, they're a serious threat, but they're definitely there in the background. And I, I think some of the moves you see at the main banks is is, is a response to that. There's, there's a definite feeling that they have to reorganize some of their operations if they're not going to, some at some point in the future, be uh, overtaken. There's no doubt about that at all. I've, I've got friends that are working in Lloyd's at the moment, and there is such an onus there on uh, improving their, their digital product range as well. And we've got to remember as well that the challenger banks, not they don't, well, many of them don't offer a full server that, provide a full service offering uh, so they may struggle in that regard but the the way that it's going forward as you just mentioned there younger people uh, have no compunction about using their phone to conduct their online banking uh, that's that's definitely the way forward and um, the likes of Lloyd's and Barclays uh, are already uh, demonstrating that they're trying to throw off those uh, uh, legacy costs you imagine over time that their fixed cost base uh, will reduce as well. And that is, as you say, partly a reaction to the onset of the challenger banks. Yeah, I mean, nobody misses queuing in a bank branch at lunchtime. I think that's the... No. <laughs> so go back 10 years that's what you had to do yeah i think we can we can certainly thank the challengers perhaps for improving the customer service at the big four as well as uh, their own uh, for their own customers but whether shareholders see equivalent improvements remains to be seen uh, as ever that uh does bring us to the end for today thank you to julian and to mark for taking time on this busy results day and thank you to you for listening we'll be back next week with another companies and market show